Hey guys, it's Sunday night, and that means it's Sunday reading night, and I will be reading from a book written by Rudyard Kipling called The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, how you doing? Happy Wednesday. I thought the intro was generic. <laughs> I just realized that was the intro for the Sunday show when I had it saved here for future reference. Gotta make a new intro tonight. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host or hostess for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Based out of Sacramento, California, we are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can help you. It might take us a couple days to get to you because California is huge. Absolutely huge. But uh, we can get you. And in the case that we can't get to you right away, we do have sensitives on staff who can call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going you know, going on in your place. And in most cases, if it is paranormal, they can settle things down for you for when we get out there. So that's pretty cool. Let me get my button pushed here. Oops, that's not the button. What'd I do? Okay. Ha! That obviously wasn't the button. <sighs> okay. Anyway, I want to welcome you all, and if you're watching from Facebook, and a lot of you are, if you haven't done so already and you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button because we're always looking for followers. Also, it helps me a lot if you give me, uh, and again, if you like what you see, throw, you know, throw, me, throw me some love. Give me some thumbs up. Give me some smileys. Give me some, some, you know, some kind of icon up there to show that you like the show. Also, feel free to chat, to talk in the chat room also. Because what that does is uh, Facebook has the, the main computer, FYP, and that puts us up in the FYP, which means it goes out to more people. Along that line also, if you have other people in your house or friends that you think might enjoy the show, do me a favor and share it. Hit that share button. Hit that share button. Um, I don't read every night. As, I, as we talked about earlier in the week, I'm behind. I was sick, and then I did not have my contact at that point. So it was hard for me to write letters to book people, get people booked. So it's going to take me about a week or so to get things caught up as far as as far as the bookings go to interview guests. I don't always read. For those of you that are new and on the RSS feed, I don't always read every night. Um, I do have other types of guests on, you know, to where we can talk about almost any topic that's paranormal or anything that's newsworthy. Anything that's newsworthy. In fact, I'm going to be interviewing uh, another journalist about the plastic crisis and I'm, you know, about the, like plastic bottles and stuff. So that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Last night, I did a show on the opioid crisis. It's an ongoing show for me as I'm a chronic pain patient, and so I have to jump through the hoops. So it was a really good show last night if that's something you're interested in. If you're watching from YouTube, again, a lot of you are, please feel free to hit that subscribe button if you haven't. We're, really, we're getting really close to our 1,000 subscribers over there for mon to try and monetize. So hoping to get there, hoping to get there. And again, leave comments in the chat room. And show me you know, some hearts and thumbs up and all that stuff. 
because that throws us out into the FYP of YouTube as well, where they distribute the show more. Okay. All right. That being said, you can find us anywhere on the web. Just Google us, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, and you will find us. Sometimes it's California Haunts Radio, but yeah, you will find us. The dog's barking. It's probably my mailman. My mailman runs late every day, every day, every day. He's like way behind. But uh, I, I have a young uh, Kelpie dog, and she can hear any, everything. I mean, if the neighbor is, you know, leaving their house across the street, she'll bark. So obviously someone's out there. I, I can't go because I'm here. So we just have to deal with that. All right. So today, um, because, again, you know, I'm behind on bookings at this point, I'm going to read from the Rudyard Kipling book, The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales. And the Phantom Rickshaw was an interesting book, a really interesting book, in that, you know, um, it was about a gentleman who is living in India, and he falls in love with this older woman who happens to be married. But then he gets tired of being around her, so he dumps her, right? But the issue is, is that once he gets a new girlfriend and all this is going on, once he gets this new girlfriend, he um, starts to see this, this, this rickshaw that this older woman had. And... So she starts following him around, you know, the city or the town that he's living in. So uh, that's where the ghost story of this comes in. But no, of course, nobody believes him. But uh, he goes to his dying bed, knowing that this woman's out there, and then he has a break, you know, get an argument with his current girlfriend who doesn't believe him. And they think he's crazy, and so he ends up alone under the care of a doctor. And he finally, you know, he just spends the rest of eternally eternity visiting this woman in the Phantom Rickshaw because that's all that happens you can't go down this road without running into her you know on, on her rickshaw so um that's where the book ends you know he, he's, he's near death and all this that's where that part of the book ends the next story is i have no idea if it's, a, if it's a ghost story or if it's just a kind of scary story or whatever it is but the next story we're going to start in is called let me pop on over there it's called the strange ride of, of marobi jukes and here's the quote in there. The, the native proverb is, alive or dead, there's no other way. So it should be interesting to see what this is. So, like I say in the beginning, uh, grab your food, grab whatever you need, uh, put your fuzzies on, jump up on the couch or a chair, a comfortable position. Maybe you're laying on the ground with, with a blanket from the fire. Uh, we're going to read for about an hour on this book, and it uh, should be interesting to see what uh, you know what this chapter brings to us. All right, so here we go. The Strange Ride of, of, of Marrow, I'm going to say Marrow B. Books, uh, Jukes, by Rudyard Kipling. And you know who Kipling was, right? He's the, he's, the guy that, he's the guy that wrote the Jungle Book. So that's how I know him. Excuse me. It's warm in here. There is, as a conjurer saying, no deception about this tale. Jukes, by accident, stumbled upon a village that is well known to exist though he is the only Englishman who has been there. A somewhat similar institution used to flourish on the outskirts of Calcutta. And there is a story that if you go into the heart of, of Bikaneer, which is in the heart of the great Indian desert, you shall come across not a village, but a town where the dead who do not die, but may not live, have established their headquarters. And since it is perfectly true that in the same desert is a wonderful city where all the rich money Money lenders, let me get in here and move this up. Come on up. Okay. All right. Where all the rich money lenders retreat after they have made their fortunes. 
parentheses, fortune so vast that the owners cannot trust even the strong hand of, okay, make sure this is going. I'm going to turn myself up a little bit, you guys. Okay, so a fortune so vast that owners cannot even trust the strong hand of the government to protect them, but take refuge in the waterless sands and drive sumptuous sea spring barouches and buy beautiful girls and decorate their palaces with gold. Okay. Make sure the mic's on. Yeah. I keep it pretty well down because it'll just blast you, so I don't want to do that. Okay, I decorate their palaces with gold and ivory and mint and tiles and mother and pearl. Mother of pearl, you know. I do not see why Jukes' tale should not be true. He's a civil engineer with a head for plans and distances and things of that kind. And he certainly would not take the trouble to invent imaginary traps. He could earn more by doing his legitimate work. He never varies the tale, especially during the telling, and grows very hot and indignant when he thinks of the disrespectful treatment he receives. He wrote this quite straightforwardly at first, but he has since touched it up in places and introduced him, introduced moral reflections. Thus, in the beginning, it all arose from a slight attack of fever. My work necessitated my being in camp for some months between Pac Patton and love foreign words. Emma Harkper, a desolate, sandy stretch of country, as everyone who has had the misfortune to go there may know. My coolies were neither more nor less exasperating than other gangs, and my work demanded sufficient attention to keep me from moping. Had I been inclined to, so many times. On the 23rd December, 1884, I felt a little feverish. Just give me a second here. Let's figure that out. Okay. On the 23rd December, 1884, I felt a little feverish. There was a full moon at the time, and in consequence, every dog near my tent was baying. Was baying it. The bruises assembled in the, 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 the brutes assembled in twos and threes. It's going to be one of those days, and drove me frantic. A few days previously, I had shot one loudmouth singer and suspended his his carcass in terrorum about fifty yards from my tent door. But his friends fell upon, fought for, and ultimately devoured the body. And, as it seemed to me, sang their hymns of thanksgiving afterward with renewed energy. The lightheartedness which accompanies fever acts differently on different men. My irritation gave me gave way after a short time, to a fixed determination to slaughter one huge black and white beast who had been foremost in the song and first in flight throughout the evening. Let me remind you guys, this book was written in the late 1800s, so a lot of the stuff is going to be old-time thinking, okay? It's, you know, it's not, how we th- you know, not how we think and look at things today, but old time. So I'm just giving you a warning. If it offends you in any way or anything like that, feel free to just move on to another show. All right? Okay. Where am I? There we go. Thanks to a shaking hand and a giddy head, I had already missed him twice with both barrels of my shotgun. When it struck me that my best plan would be to ride him down into the open and finish him off with a hog spear. This, of course, was merely the semi-delirious notion of a fever patient. But I remember that it struck me at the time as being eminently practical and feasible. I therefore ordered my groom to settle Pornick and bring him round quietly to the rear of my tent. When the pony was ready, I stood at his head, 
prepared to mount and dash out as soon as the dog should again lift up his voice. Pornick, by the way, had not been out of his pickets for a couple of days. The night air was crisp and chilly, and I was armed with a specially long and sharp pair of persuaders with which I had been rousing a sluggish cob that afternoon. You will easily believe then that when he was let go, he went quickly. In one moment, for the brute bolted as straight as a die. The tent was left far behind, and we were flying over the smooth sandy soil at racing speed. In another moment, we had passed the wretched dog, and I had almost forgotten why, why it was that I had taken the horse and hogspear. The delirium of fever and the excitement of rapid motion through the air must have been taken must have taken away the remnant of my senses. I have a faint recollection of standing upright in my stirrups and of brandishing my hog spear at the great white moon that I looked down that looked down so calmly on my mad gallop, and of shout long challenges to the camel thorn bushes as they whizzed past. Once or twice, I believe, I swayed forward on Pontic's on Pornick, I'm sorry, Pornick's neck and literally hung on by my spears as the marks next morning showed. The wretched beast went forward like a thing possessed, over what seemed to be a limitless expanse of moonlit sand. Next, I remember, the ground rose suddenly in front of us, and as we topped the ascent, I saw the waters of the, of the settledge shining like a silver bar below. The portic bl blundered heavily on his nose and we rolled together down some unseen slope. I must have lost consciousness, for when I recovered, I was lying on my stomach in a heap of soft white sand, and the dawn was beginning to break dimly over the edge of the slope down which I had fallen. As the light grew stronger, I saw that I was at the bottom of a horseshoe-shaped crater of sand, opening on one side directly onto the shoals of the sillage. My fever had altogether left me, and, with the exception of a slight dizziness in the head, I felt no effects from the fall overnight. Pornick, who was standing a few yards away, was naturally a good deal exhausted, but had not hurt himself in the least. His saddle, a favorite polo one, as much, as, was much knocked about, and had been twisted under his belly. It took me some time to put him to rights, and in the meantime I had ample opportunities of observing the spot into which I had so foolishly dropped. At the risk of being considered tedious, I must describe it at length, inasmuch as an accurate mental picture of its peculiarities will be of material assistance in enabling the reader to understand what follows. Imagine, then, as I have said before, a horseshoe-shaped crater of sand with steeply graded sand walls about 35 feet high, Parentheses, the slope, I fancy, must have been about 65 degrees. In parentheses. This crater enclosed a level piece of ground about 50 yards long by 30 at its broadest part, with a crude well in the center. Round the bottom of the crater, about three feet from the level of the ground proper, ran a series of 83 semicircular ovioid square and multilateral hose. Wow. Holes. All the pies just said that other word tonight. Multilateral holes, okay? It's going to be like that. All about 83 semi... Okay, all about three feet at the mouth. This is like all jammed together when I'm reading it. All about three feet at the mouth. Each hole on inspection showed that it was carefully shored internally with driftwood and bamboos. 
and over the mouth of a wooden drip for projected. Okay, and over the mouth, it wouldn't drip toward projected like the peak of a jockey's cap for two feet. No sign of life was visible in these tunnels, but a most sickeningly stench pervaded the entire amphitheater, a stench fouler than any which my underlings in the Indian, in, in the Indian villages have introduced to me. Having remounted Pornick, who was as anxious as I to get back to camp, I rode around the base of the horseshoe to find some place whence an exit would be practicable. The inhabitants, whoever they might be, had not thought to put in an appearance, so I was left to my own devices. My first attempt to rush Pornick up the, up the steep sandbanks showed me that I had fallen into a trap exactly on the same model as that which the antlion sets for its prey. At each step, the shifting sand poured down from above in tons, and rattled on the drip boards of the holes like small, like small shot. A couple of ineffectual charges sent us both rolling down the bottom, half choked with the torrents of sand, and I was constrained to turn my attention to the riverbank. Here, everything seemed easy enough. The sand hills ran down to the river edge. It is true, but there were plenty of shoals and shallows across which I could gallop Pornick and find my way back to terra firma by turning sharply to the right or left. As I lit Pornick over the sands, I was startled by the faint pop of a rifle across the river, and at the same moment, a bullet dropped with sharp wit close to Pornick's head. There was no mistaking the nature of the missile, a regulation Martini Henry Pickett. About 500 yards away, a country boat was anchored in midstream, and a jet of smoke drifting away from its bows. In, st in the still morning air showed me whence the delicate attention had come. Was ever respectable gentleman in such an in such an impasse? The treacherous sand slope allowed no escape from a spot which I had visited most involuntarily, and a promenade on the river frontage was the signal for a bombardment from some insane native in a boat. I'm afraid that I lost my temper very much indeed. Another bullet reminded me that I had better save my breath to cool my porridge, and I retreated hastily up the sands and back to the horseshoe, where I saw that the noise of the rifle had drawn 65 human beings from the badger holes, which I had, up till that point, supposed to be un un supposed to be empty. Let's just go with that. I found myself in the midst of a crowd of spectators, about 40 men, 20 women, and one child, who could not have been more than five years old. They were all scantily clothed in that salmon-colored cloth, which was one which one associates with Hindu medicants, and at first sight gave me the impression of a band of loathsome fakers. The filth and repulsiveness of the assembly were beyond all description, and I shuddered to think what their life in the bigger holes must be. Even in these days, when local self-government has destroyed the greater part of the natives' respect for Sahib, I have been accustomed to a certain amount of civility from my inferiors, and on approaching the crowd naturally expected that there would be some recognition of my presence. As a matter of fact, there was, but it was by no means what I had looked for. The ragged crew actually laughed at me. Such laughter I hope I may never hear again. They cackled, yelled, whistled, and howled as I walked into their midst, some of them literally throwing themselves down on the ground in convulsions of unholy mirth. In a moment, I had let go of Pornick's head, 
and, irritated beyond expression at the morning's adventure, commenced cuffing those nearest to me with all the force I could. The wretches dropped under my blows like ninepins, and the laughter gave place to walls for mercy. While those yet untouched clasped me round the knees, imploring me in all sorts of uncouth tongues to spare them. In the tumult, and just when I was feeling very much ashamed of myself for having thus easily given up my temper, a thin, high voice murmured in English from behind my shoulder. Sahib, Sahib, do you not know me? Sahib, it is Gunga Das, the telegraph master. I spun round quickly and faced the speaker. Gunga Das. Parentheses. I have, of course, no hesitation mentioning the man's real name. In parentheses. I had known four years before as a Deccani Brahmin loaned by the Punjab government to one of the one of the Kahalsa states. He was in charge of a branch telegraph office there. And when I had last met him, he was jovial. He was, he was a joyful, jovial, I'm sorry. Wow, did I stop it? Did I know? <laughs> and when I last met him, he was a jovial, full stomach, partly government servant with a marvelous capacity for making bad puns in English, a, pecu a peculiarity which made me remember him long after I had forgotten his services to me in his official capacity. It is seldom that a Hindu makes English puns. Like I said, late 1800s, no insults intended for anybody. Just, let's just do this. Excuse me. Now, however, the man was, char was changed beyond all recognition. Case marked stomach, slight colored continuations, and an unctuous speech were all gone. I looked at a withered skeleton, turbanless and almost naked, with long matted hair and deep-set codfish eyes, but for a crescent-shaped scar on his left cheek, the result of an accident for which I was responsible. I should never have known him. But it was indubitably Gunga Das, and for this I was thankful, an English-speaking native who might at least tell me the meaning of all that I had gone through that day. The crowd retreated to some distance as I turned toward the miserable figure and ordered him to show me some method of escaping from the crater. He held a freshly plucked crow in his hand and in reply to my question, climbed slowly on a platform of sand which ran in front of the holes and commenced lighting a fire there in silence. Dried bents, sand poppies, and driftwood burn quickly and I derived much consolation from the fact that he lit them with an ordinary sulfur match. When they were in a bright glow, and the crow was nearly, was nearly spitted in front of their, thereof, Gonga Das began without a word of preamble. Quote, there are only two kinds of men, Sar, the alive and the dead. When you are dead, you are dead, but when you are alive, you live. Here the crow demanded his attention for an instant, as it twirled before the fire in danger of being burned to a cinder. If you die at home, and do not die. And do not die when you come to the Ghat to be burned, you come here. Ah, in between world. I got it. The nature of the reeking village was made plain now. And all that I had known or read of the grotesque and horrible pallid before the fact, just communicated by the ex Robin, 16 years ago when I first landed in Bombay, I had been told that a wandering Armenian of existence somewhere in India of a place to where such 
as a place to which such Hindus had the misfortune to recover from trance, were conveyed and kept. And I recollect laughing heartily at what I was then pleased to consider a traveler's tale. Sitting at the bottom of the sand trap, the memory of Watson's hotel, with its swinging punkas, white-robed attendants, and the sallow-faced Armenian, rose up in my mind as vividly as a photograph, and I burst into a loud fit of laughter. The contrast was too absurd. Gunga Das, as he bent over the unclean bird, watched me curiously. Hindus seldom laugh, and his surroundings were not such as to move Gunga Din or Gunga Din. Did I say Din? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just realized that. I was thinking about Gunga Din from the movies. And his surroundings were not such as to move Gunga Das to any undue excess of hilarity. He removed the crow solemnly from the wooden spit and as solemnly devolved it. Then he continued his story, which I give into his own words. <laughs> this is going to be great for some outtakes. In epidemics of the cholera, you are carried to be burned almost before you're dead. When you come to the riverside, the cold air perhaps makes you alive, and then, if you are only a little alive, mud is put on your nose and mouth, and you die conclusively. If you are rather more alive, more mud is put. But if you are too lively, they let you go and take you away. I was too lively, and made protestation with anger against the, the indignities that, that they endeavored to press upon me. In those days, I was a Brahmin and proud man. Now I'm a dead man and eat. Here, he eyed the well-nod breastbone with the first sight of emotion that I had seen in him since we met. Crows and other things. They took me from my sheets when they saw that I was too lively and gave me medicines for one week, and I survived successfully. Then they sent me by rail from my place to Okra Station with a man to take care of me, and at Okra Station we met two other men, and they conducted we three on camels in the night from Okra Station to this place. And they propelled me from the top to the bottom. And the other two succeeded, and I have been here ever since, two and a half years. Once I was Brahmin and a proud man, and now I eat crows. There is no way of getting out. None of what kind at all. When I first came, I made experiments frequently, and all the others also. But we have always succumbed to the sand, which is precipitated upon our heads. But surely, I broke in at this point, the riverfront is open. And it is worthwhile, it is worthwhile dodging the bullets, all at night. I had already matured a rough plan of escape, which a natural instinct of selfishness forbade me sharing with Gunga Das. He, however, divined my astonishment, gave vent to a long, low chuckle of, of, of derision, the laughter, be it understood, of a superior, or at least an equal. You will not. He had dropped the sir completely after his opening sentence. Make any escape that way, but you can try. I have tried. Once only. The sensation of nameless terror and fear which I had in vain attempted to strive against overmastered me completely. My long fast, it was now close upon 10 o'clock, and I had eaten nothing since Tiffin on the previous day, combined with the violent and unnatural agitation of the ride, had exhausted me, and I verily believed that. For a few minutes I acted as one mad. I hurled myself against the pitiless sand slope. I ran around the base of the crater, blaspheming my prayer by turns. I crawled out among the sedges of the riverfront, 
only to be driven back each time in agony of nervous dread by the rifle bullets which cut up the sand around me. For I had dared not face the death of a mad dog among that hideous crowd, and finally fell. Spent in raving, at the curb of the well, no one had taken the slightest notion of an exhibition which makes me blush hotly, even when I think of it now. Two or three men trod on my panting body as they drew water, but they were evidently used to this sort of thing and had no time to waste upon me. The situation was humiliating. Gunga Das, indeed, when he had banked the embers of his fire with sand, was at some pains to throw half a cupful of feet of water over my head, an attention for which I could have fallen on my knees and thanked him. But he was laughing all the while in the same mirthless, wheezy key that greeted me on my first attempt to force the shoals. And so, in a semi-comatose condition, I lay till noon. Till noon. Then, being only a man after all, I felt hungry, and intimated as much to Gungadas, whom I had begun to regard as my natural protector. Following the impulse of the, out, of the outer world when dealing with natives, I put my hand into my pocket and drew out four honors. The absurdity of the gift struck me at once, and I was about to replace the money. Gungadas, however, was of a different opinion. Give me the money, said he. All you have, or I will get, or I will get help, and we will kill you. All this, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. A Briton's first impulse, I believe, is to guard the contents of his pockets. But a, but a moment's reflection convinced me of the futility of differing with the one man who had it in his power to make me comfortable, and with those help, and with those whose help it was possible that I might eventually escape from the crater. I gave him all the money in my possession. RS nine eight five nine rupees, eight annas, and five pi, for I always keep small change, as as bakshish, when I'm in camp. Ganga Das clutched the coins, and hid them at once in his ragged loincloth. His expression changing to something diabolical as he looked round to assure himself that no one had observed us. Now, I'll give you something to eat," said he. What pleasure the possession of my money could have afforded him, I am unable to say, but inasmuch as it did give him evident delight, I was not sorry that I had parted with it so readily. For I have no doubt that he would have had me killed if I had refused. One does not protest against the vagaries of a den of wild beasts, and my companions were lower than any beasts. While I devoured what Gongadas had provided, a coarse chapati and a cupful of foul well water. The people showed not the faintest sign of curiosity, that curiosity which is so rampant as a rule in an Indian village. I could even fancy that they despised me. At all events, they treated me with the most chilling indifference, and Gunga Das was nearly as bad. I plied him with questions about the terrible village and received extremely unsatisfactory answers. So far as I could gather, it had been in existence from time immemorial, time, time immemorial, whence I concluded that it was at least a century old, and during the, that time no one had ever been known to escape from it. I had to control myself here with both hands, lest the blind terror should lay hold of me a second time and drive me raving around the crater. Gunga Das took a malicious pleasure in emphasizing this point and in watching me wince. Nothing that I could do 
would induce him to tell me who the mysterious they were. It is ordered, he would reply, and I do not yet know anyone who has disobeyed the orders. Only wait until my servants find that I am missing, I retorted, and I promise you that this place shall be cleared off the face of the earth, and I'll give you a lesson in civility too, my friend. Your servants would be torn in pieces before they came near this place, and, besides, you are dead, my dear friend. It is not your fault, of course, but nonetheless, you are dead and buried. At irregular intervals, supplies of food, I was told, were dropped down from the land side of the amphitheater. And the inhabitants fought for them like wild beasts. When a man felt his death coming on, he retreated to his lair and died there. The body was sometimes dragged out of the hole and thrown onto the sand, or allowed to rot where it lay. The phrase, thrown onto the sand, caught my attention, and I asked Gungadess asked whether this sort of thing was not likely to breed pestilence. That, he said with another of his wheezy chuckles, you may see for yourself subsequently. You will have much time to make observations. Whereat, to, this great to his great delight, I winced once more and hastily continued the conversation. And how do you live here from day to day? What do you do? The question elicited exactly the same answer as before, coupled with the information that this place is like your European heaven. There is neither marrying nor given in marriage. Gungadas had been educated at a mission school, and, as he himself admitted, he had only changed his religion like a wise man, might have avoided the living grave which was now his portion. But as long as I was with him, I fancy he was happy. He was a sahib, a representative of the dominant race, helpless as a child and completely at the mercy of his native neighbors. In a deliberate, lazy way, he set himself to torture me as a schoolboy would devote a rapturous half-hour to watching the agonies of an impaled beetle, or as a ferret in a blind burrow might glue himself comfortably to the neck of a rabbit. The burden of his conversation was that there was no escape, of no kind whatsoever, and that I should stay there till I died and was thrown onto the road. If it were possible to forejudge the conversation of the damned on the advent of a new soul in their abode, I should say that they would speak they, sh they would speak as Gunga Das did to me throughout that long afternoon. I was powerless to protect or answer, all my energies being devoted to a struggle against the inexplicable terror that threatened to overwhelm me again and again. I can compare terror that threatened to, I'm sorry, I just I mean it's all like well together. I can compare the feelings to nothing except the struggles of a man against the overpowering nausea of the channel of a channel passage. Only that my agony was of the spirit and infin infinitely more terrible. As the day wore on, the inhabitants began to appear in full strength to catch the rays of the afternoon sun, which were now sloping in, in at the mouth of the crater. They assembled in little knots and talked among themselves without even throwing a glance in my direction. About four o'clock, as far as I could judge, Gunga Das rose and dived into this lair for, dove into this lair for a moment, emerging with a live crow in his hands. The wretched bird was in the most draggled and deplorable condition, but seemed to be in no way afraid of its master. Advancing cautiously to the riverfront, Ganga Des stepped from the tussock, from tussock to tussock until he had reached a smooth patch of sand directly in line of the boat's fire. The occupants of the boat took no notice. Here he stopped, 
and, with a couple of dexterous turns of the wrist, pegged the bird on its back with outstretched wings. As was only natural, the crow began to shriek at once and beat the air with his claws. In a few seconds, the clamor had attracted the attention of a bevy of wild crows on the shoal a few hundred yards away, where they were discussing something that looked like a corpse. Half a dozen crows flew over at once to see what was going on, and also, as it proved, to attack the pinion bird. Gunga Das, who had laid down on the tussock, motioned for me to be quiet, though I fancied this was a needless precaution. In a moment, and before I could see how it happened, a wild crow, who had grappled with the shrieking and helpless bird, was entangled in the latter's claws. Swiftly disengaged by Gunga Das, and pegged down beside his companion in adversity. Curious, curiosity, it seemed, overpowered the rest of the flock, and almost before Gunga Das and I had time to withdraw from to the Tosuk. Two more captains were struggling in the upturned claws of the decoys. So the chase, if I can give it such a dignified name, continued until Gunga Das had captured seven crows. Five of them he throttled at once, reserving two for further operations another day. I was a good deal impressed by this. To me, novel method of security. To me, a novel method included, and complimented Gunga Das on the skill. It is. It is nothing to do," said he. "Tomorrow you must do it for me. You are stronger than I am." The calm assumption of superiority upset me a little, and I answered, "Indeed, you old ruffian. What do you think I have given you money for?" "Very well," was the amused reply. Perhaps not tomorrow, nor the day after, nor subsequently. But in the end, and for many years, you will catch crows and eat crows, and you will thank your European god that you have crows to catch and eat. I could have cheerfully strangled him for this, but judge it best under the, judge it best under the circumstances to smother my resentment. An hour later, I was eating one of the crows, and, as Gunga Das had said, thanking God that I had a crow to eat. Never, as long as I live, Shall I forget that evening meal? The whole population were squatting on the hard sand platform opposite the dens, huddled over tiny fires of refuse and dried rushes. Death, having once laid his hand on these men and, for, and, and forborne to strike, seemed to stand aloof from them now. For most of our company were old men, bent and worn and twisted with years, and women aged all appearance as the fates themselves. They sat together in knots and talked. God only knows what they found to discuss, in low equable tones, curiously, in contrast to the strident babble with which natives are accustomed to make day to make day hideous. Now and then an axis of that sudden fury which had possessed me in the morning would lay hold of a man on a man or woman. And with yells of imprecations, the sufferer would attack the sleep slope until, baffled and bleeding, he fell back on the platform incapable of moving a limb. The others would never even raise their eyes when this happened, as men too, as men too well aware of the futility of their fellows' attempts, were, were wearied with their useless repetition. I saw four such outbursts in the course of the evening. Goga Das took an eminently businesslike view of my situation, and while we were dining, I can afford to laugh at the recollection now, but it was painful enough at the time propounded the terms on which he would consent to do for me. My nine rupees, eight annas, he argued, 
at the rate of three ounces a day would provide me with food for 51 days, or about seven weeks. That is to say, he would be willing to cater for me for that length of time. At the end of it, I was to look after myself. For a further consideration, if I had to listen my boots, he would be willing to allow me to occupy the den next to his own, and would supply me with as much dried grass for bedding as he could spare. Very well, Dunga Das, I replied to the first terms. I cheerfully agree, but as there is nothing on earth to prevent my killing you as you sit here and taking everything that you have, because I thought of the two invaluable crows at the time, I flatly refuse to give you my boots and shall take whichever den I please. The stroke was a bold one, and I was glad when I saw that it had, it had succeeded. Gunga Das changed his tone immediately and disavowed all intention of asking for my boots. At the time, it did not strike me as it was strange that I, a civil engineer, a man of 13 years standing in the service, and, I trust, an average Englishman, should thus calmly threaten murder and violence against the man who had, for all consideration is true, taken me under his wing. I had left the world at sea for centuries. I was as certain then as I am of my own existence. But that, in the accursed settlement, there was no law save that of the strongest, that the living dead man had thrown behind them every cannon of the world which had cast them out, and that I had to depend for my own life on the strength of vigilance alone. The crew of the ill-fated... Okay, M-I-G-O... And E T T E, that's all I'm going to say, are the only men who would understand my frame of mind. At present, I argued to myself, I'm strong and a match for six of these wretches. It is imperatively necessary that I should, for my own sake, keep both health and strength until the hour of my release comes, if it ever does. Fortified with these resolutions, I ate and drank as much as I could and made Gunga Das understand that I intended to be his master, and that the last sign of insubordination on his part would be visited with the only punishment I had in my power to inflict, sudden and violent death. Shortly after this, I went to bed. This is to say Gunga Das gave me a double armful of dried bents, which I thrust down the mouth of the lair to the right of his, and followed myself feet, first, feet foremost the hole running about nine feet into the sand with a slight downward inclination, and being nearly, neatly shored with timbers. From my den, which faced the riverfront, I was able to watch the waters of the I was able to watch the waters of the river, flowing past under the light of a young moon, and compose myself to sleep as best as I might. The horrors of the night I shall never forget. My den was nearly as narrow as a coffin and the sides had been worn smooth and greasy by the contact of innumerable naked bodies, adding to which added to which it smelled horribly. Sleep was altogether out of the question to, to one in my excited frame of mind. As the night wore on, it seemed that the entire amphitheater was filled with legions of unclean devils that, trooping up from the shoals below, mocked the unfortunates in their lairs. Personally, I am not of an imaginative temperament. Very few engineers are, but on that occasion, I was as completely prostrated with nervous terror as any, as any woman. After half an hour or so, however, I was able to once more 
to I was once able I was able once more to calmly review my chances of escape. Any exit from the steep sand walls was, of course, impossible. I had been thoroughly convinced of this some time before. It was possible, just possible, that I might, in the uncertain moonlight, safely run the gauntlet of the rifle shots. The place was so full of terror for me that as I prepared to undergo any risk in leaving it, imagine my delight, then, after creeping stealthily to the riverfront, I found that the infernal boat was not there. My freedom lay before me in the next few steps. By walking out to the first shallow pool that lay at the foot of the projecting left corner of the horseshoe, I could wade across, turn the flank of the crater, and make my way inland. Without a moment's hesitation, I marched briskly past the tussocks where Gungadassin had stared and out in the direction of the smooth white sand beyond. My first step from the tufts of dry grass showed me how utterly futile was any hope of escape, for, as I put my foot down, I felt an indescribable drawing, sucking motion of the sand below. Another moment, and my leg was swallowed up nearly to the knee. And the moonlight, the whole surface of the sand, seemed to be shaken with, shake, shaken with devilish delight at my disappointment. I struggled clear, sweating with terror and exertion, back to the tussocks behind me, and fell on my face. My only means of escape from the semicircle was protected with quicksand. How long I lay, I have not the faintest idea, but I was roused at last by the malevolent chuckle of going gas at my ear. I would advise you, protector, I would advise you, protector of the poor, the ruffian was speaking in English, to return to your house. It is unhealthy to lie down here. Moreover, when the boat returns, you will most certainly be rifled at. He stood over me in the dim light of the dawn, chuckling and laughing to himself, suppressing my first impulse to catch the man by the neck and throw him onto the quicksand. I rose suddenly and followed him to the platform below the burrows. Suddenly and futilely, as I thought while I spoke, I asked Gungadass, what is the good of the boat if I can't get out? Anyhow, I recollect that even in my deepest trouble I had been speculating vaguely on the waste of ammunition and guarding an already well-protected foreshore. Gungadass laughed again and made answer. They have the boat only in daytime. It is for the reason that there is a way. I hope we shall have the pleasure of your company for a much longer time. It is a pleasant spot when you have been here some years and eaten roast crow long enough. I staggered, numbed and helpless, toward the fetid burrow allotted to me and fell asleep. An hour or so later, I was awakened by a piercing scream, the shrill, high-pitched scream of a horse in pain. Those who have once heard that will never forget the sound. I found some little difficulty in scrambling out of the burrow. When I was in the open, I saw Pornick, my poor old Pornick, lying dead on the sandy soil. How they killed him, I cannot guess. Gunga Das explained that the horse was better than Crow, and greatest good of greatest number is a political maxim. We are now Republic, Mr. Jukes, and you are entitled to a fair sh share of the beast. If you like, we'll pass a vote of thanks. Shall I propose? Yes. We were a republic indeed, a republic of wild beasts penned at the bottom of a pit, to eat and fight and sleep till we died. I attempted no protest of any kind, but sat down and stared at the hideous sight in front of me. In less time, 
almost as it takes for me to write this. Hornick's body was divided. In some unclear way or other, the men and women had dragged the fragments onto the platform and were preparing their normal meal. Ganga Das cooked mine. The almost irresistible impulse to fly at the sand walls until I was weary, wearied lay hold of me afresh, and I had to struggle against it with all my might. Ganga Das was offensively jocular, till I told him that if he addressed another remark of any kind, whatever to me, I should strangle him where he sat. Thus silenced. Oh, this silenced him till, till silence became insupportable, and I bade him say something. You will live here till you die like the other Farragate, he said, coolly, watching me over the fragment of gristle that he was gnawing. What other sahib, you swine? Speak at once and don't stop to tell me a lie. He is over there, answered Gungadas, pointing to a burrow mouth about four doors to the left of my own. You can see for yourself, he died in the burrow as you will die, and I will die. And as all these men and women, and the one child will also die. For pity's sake, tell me all you know about him. Who was he? When did he come? And when did he die? This appeal was a weak step on my part. Gunga Das only leered and replied, I will not, unless you give me something first. Then I recollected where I was, and struck the man between the eyes, partially stunning him. He stepped down from the platform at once, and cringing and fawning and weeping and attempting to embrace my feet, led me round to the burrow, which he had indicated. I know nothing whatsoever about this gentleman. Your God be my witness that I do not. He was as anxious to escape as you were, and he was shot in the boat, shot from the boat, though we all did all things to prevent him from attempting. He was shot here, on the desk, laid his hand on his lean stomach, and bowed to the earth. Well, and what then? Go on. And then, and then, Your Honor, we carried him into this house and gave him water and put wet clothes on the wound, and he laid down this house and gave him the ghost. And how long? And how long? About half an hour after he received his wound. I called Vishnu to witness. Yet the wretched man, that I did not, oh, yelled the wretched man, I'm sorry, that I did everything for him, everything which was possible, that I did. He threw himself down on the ground and clasped my ankles, but I had no doubts, but, but I had my doubts about Gungadas's benevolence, and kicked him off as he lay protesting. I believe you robbed him of everything he had, but I can't find out in a minute, but I can find out in a minute or two. How long was the Sahib here? Nearly a year and a half. I think he must have gone mad. But hear me swear, protector of the poor. Won't your honor hear me swear that I never touched an article that belonged to him? What is your worship going to do? I had taken Gunga Das by the waist and had hauled him onto the platform opposite the deserted burrow. As I did so, I thought of my wretched fellow prisoners' unspeakable misery among all these horrors for 18 months and the final agony of dying like a rat in a hole with a bullet wound in his stomach. Ganga Das fancied I was going to kill him and howl pitifully. The rest of the population, in the plethora that follows a full-fleshed meal, watched us without stirring. Go inside, Ganga Das, said I, and fetch it out. I was feeling sick and faint with horror now. Ganga Das nearly rolled off the platform and howled aloud. But I am Brahmin, Sahib, a high-case high Brahmin. By your soul, by your father's soul, do not make me do this thing. 
Brahman or no Brahman, by my soul and my father's soul, in you go, I said, and, sizing him up by the shoulders, I crammed his head into the mouth of the burrow, kicked the rest of him in, and, sitting down, covered my face with my hands. At the end of a few minutes, I heard a rustle in a creek. Then Gunga Das, in a sobbing and choking whisper, speaking to himself. Then a soft thud, and I uncovered my eyes. The dry sand had turned the corpse entrusted to its keeping into a yellow-brown mummy. I told Gunga Das to stand off while I examined it. The body, clad in an olive-green hunting suit, was much stained and worn, with leather pads on the shoulders, was that of a man between thirty and forty, above middle height, with light, sandy hair, long mustache, and a rough, uncut beard. The left canine of the upper jaw was missing, and a portion of the lobe of the right ear was gone. On the second finger of the left hand was a ring, a shield-shaped bloodstone set in gold, with a monogram that might have been either BK or BL. On the third finger of the right hand was a silver ring in the shape of a coif cobra, much worn and tarnished. Ganga Das deposited a handful of trifles he had picked out for the burrow at my feet, and, covering the face of the body with my handkerchief, I turned to examine these. I gave the full list in the I give the full list in the hope that it may lead to the identification of the unfortunate man. Got a little drink here. Thank you for not laughing at me. Number one. Bowl of, briar, bowl of briarwood pipe, serrated at the edge, much worn and blackened, bound with string at the crew. 2. Patent leather keys, wards of both broken. Tortoiseshell handled penknife, silver and nickel, nameplate, marked with monogram, BK. Envelope, postmarked, undecipherable, bearing a Victorian stamp, addressed to Miss Mon. Very intelligible. Ham or NT. Iman, imitation crocodile skin notebook with pencil. First 45 pages blank. Four and a half illegible. 15 others filled with private memories related chiefly to three persons. A Mrs. L. Singleton, abbreviated several times to Lot Single, Mrs. S. May, and, and Garbison, referred to in places as Jerry or Jack. Handle of a small size hunting knife, blade snapped short, buck's horn, diamond cut, with swivel and ring and ring on the butt. Fragment of cotton cord attached. It must not be supposed that I inventoried all these things on the spot as fully as I have here written them down. The notebook first attracted my attention, and I put it in my pocket with a view of studying it later on. The rest of the art articles I conveyed to my burrow for safety's sake, and there being a methodical man. I inventoried them. I then returned to the corpse and ordered Gunga Das to help me carry it out to the riverfront. While we were engaged in this, the exploded shell of an old brown cartridge dropped out of one of the pockets and rolled at my feet. Gunga Das had not seen it, and I felt and I fell to thinking that a man does not carry exploded cartridge cases, especially browns, which will not bear loading twice about with him when shooting. In other words, that cartridge case had been fired inside the crater. Consequently, there must be a gun somewhere. I was on the verge of asking Gunga Das, but checked myself, knowing that he would lie. We laid the body down on the edge of the quicksand by the tussocks. It was my intention to push it out 
to let it be swallowed up the only possible mode of burial that I could think of. I ordered Gunga Das to go away. Then, I gingerly put the corpse out on the quicksand. In doing so, it was laying face downward. I tore the frail and rotten khaki shooting coat open, disclosing a hideous cavity in the back. I had already told you that the dry sand had, as it were, mummified the body. A moment's glass showed that the gaping hole had been caused by a gunshot wound. The gun must have been fired with the muzzle almost touching the back. The shooting coat, being intact, had been drawn over the body after death, which must have been instantaneous. The secret of the poor wretch's death was plain to be in the flesh, in a flash. Someone of the crater, presumably Gunga Das, must have shot him with his own gun, the gun that fitted the brown cartridges. He had never attempted to escape in the face of the rifle fire from the boat. I pushed the corpse out hastily and saw it sink from sight literally in a few seconds. I shuddered as I watched. In a dazed, half-conscious way, I turned to pursue or to peruse the notebook. A stained and discolored slip of paper had been inserted between the binding and the back and dropped out as I had been as I opened the pages. This is what it contained. Quote, four out from four out from pro clump. Three left, nine out, two right, three back, two left, fourteen out, two left, seven out, one left, nine back, two right, six back, four right, seven back. The paper had been burned and charred at the edges. What it meant I couldn't understand. I sat down on the dried bench, turning it over and over between my fingers, until I was aware of Gogodas standing immediately behind me with glowing eyes and outstretched hands. Have you got it? he panted. Will you not let me look at it also? I swear. That I will return it. God, what? Return what? I asked. That which you have in your hands. It will help us both. He stretched out his long bird-like talons, trembling with eagerness. I could never find it, he continued. He has secreted about his person. Therefore, I shot him. But nevertheless, I was unable to obtain it. Ganga Das had quite forgotten his little fiction about the rifle bullet. I received the information perfectly calmly. Morality is blunted by consorting with the dead who are alive. What on earth are you raving about? What is it you want me to give you? The piece of paper in the notebook. It will help us both. Oh, you fool, you fool. Can you not see that it, what it will do for us? We shall escape. His voice rose almost to a scream, and he danced with excitement before me. Before me. Before me. Yeah. Before me. I own I was moved at the chance of getting away. Don't skip. Explain yourself. Do you mean to say that this slip of paper will help us? What does it mean? Read it aloud. Read it aloud. I beg. I pray you to read it aloud. I did so. Gunga Das listened delightfully and drew an irregular line on the sand with his fingers. See now? It was the length of his gun barrels without the stock. I have those barrels. Four gun barrels out from the place where I caught the crows. Straight out. You follow me? Then three left. Ah, how well I remember when that man worked it out right after, night after night. Then nine out, and so on. Out is always straight before you, across the quicksand. He told me so before I killed him. But if you knew all this, why didn't you go get out before? I did not know it. He told me that he was working it out a year and a half ago, and now he was working it out right, you know, night after night when the boat had gone away. And he could get out near the quicksand safely. 
Then he said that we would get, get away together. But I was afraid he would leave, leave me behind one night when he had worked it all out. And so I shot him. Besides, it is not advisable that the men who once get in here should escape. Only I and I am a Brahmin. The prospect of escape had brought Gunga Das's case back to him. He stood up, walked about, walked about, and gesticulated. <laughs> I can't say this word. Gesticulated. There it is. I don't want to go out. I'm tired. And walked about and gesticulated violently. Eventually, I managed to make him talk soberly. And he told me how this Englishman had spent six months, night after night, in exploring inch by inch the passage across the quicksand. How he had declared it to be simplicity itself up to within 20 yards of the river bank after turning the plank of the left horn of the horseshoe. This much he had evidently not completed when Gunga Dash shot him with his own gun. In my frenzy of delight at the possibilities of escape, I recollect shaking hands effusively with Gunga Dash after we had decided that we were to make the attempt to get away that very night. It was weary work waiting throughout the afternoon. About 10 o'clock, as far as I could judge. See where we're at. Okay. Seven minutes. About 10 o'clock, as far as I could judge, when, when the moon has just risen above the lip of the crater, Ganga Das made a move for his burrow to bring out the gun barrels whereby to measure our path. All the other wretched inhabitants had retired to their lairs long ago. The guardian boat drifted downstream some hours before, and we were utterly alone by the crow clump. Gunga Das, while carrying gun barrels, let slip the piece of paper which was to be our guide. I stooped down hastily to recover it, and as I did so, I was aware that the diabolical Brahmin was aiming a violent blow at the back of my head with the gun barrels. It was too late to turn around. I must have reached the blow. I must have received the blow somewhere on the nape of the neck. A hundred thousand fiery stars dashed before my eyes, and I fell forward senseless at the edge of the quicksand. When I recovered consciousness, the moon was going down, and I was sensible of intolerable pain in the back of my head. Gunga Das had disappeared, and my mouth was full of blood. I lay down again and prayed that I might die without more ado. Then the unreasoning fury, which I had before mentioned, laid hold upon me, and I staggered inland towards the wells of the crater. It seemed that someone was calling to me in a whisper, Sahib, Sahib, Sahib. Exactly as my bearer used to call me in the morning, I fancied that I was delirious until a handful of sand fell at my feet. Then I looked up and saw a head, a head peering down into the amphitheater, the head of Dunnu, my dog boy, who attended to my colleagues. As soon as he had attracted my attention, he held up his hand and showed me a rope. I motioned, staggering to and fro for, for the while, that he should throw it down. It was a couple of leather, it was a couple of leather uh, punk call ropes, knotted together with a loop at one end. I slipped the loop over my head and under my arms. Heard Dunu urge something forward. Was conscious that I was being dragged face downward up the steep sand slope, and the next instant found myself choked and half-fainting on the sand hills overlooking the crater. Dunu, with his face ashen, gray in the moonlight, implored me not to stay, but to get back to my tent at once. 
it seems that he had tracked Pornick's footprints 14 miles across the sands of the crater and returned and told my servants, who flatly refused to meddle with anyone. White or black once fallen into that hideous village of the dead, whereupon Danu had taken one of my ponies and a couple of, of, of punkah ropes, returned to the crater and hauled me out, as I've described. To cut a long story short, Danu is now my personal servant on a gold mohur, mohur a month, a sum, which I still think far too little for the services he's, he has rendered. Nothing on earth will induce me to go near that devilish spot again, or to reveal its whereabouts more clearly than I have done. Of Gunga Das, I never found a trace, nor do I wish to do so. My sole motive in giving this to be published is the hope that someone may possibly identify from the details of the inventory which I have given above the corpse of the man in the olive green hunting suit. All right, that is the end of that story. Next one that's coming up, we're not going to read it, uh, is The Man Who Would Be King, and I will get to this on Sunday. So that'll be Sunday's uh, read part of this book is The Man Who Would Be King. All right, let me get back over to you guys. Okay, I see you in there. Hello, Pamela. Pamela's here. Pamela's in the house. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight and uh, listening to me read. It looks pretty good, actually. It's kind of funny because every time I take on, you know, stuff from like other lands, it's really hard for me to like maneuver all the uh, verbiage and everything. So it makes it kind of fun for me. Okay, well, tomorrow I'll be back at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I may have a guest. Not sure. I'm working with somebody right now. And if not, I, I will probably give a uh, another one-on-one -on -one night or something like that. Tell ghost stories or something like that. You know, or, or we'll discuss some famous haunted places like the Queen Mary and different different things like that. But uh, I appreciate each and every one of you for listening to me read, even though it was kind of it was kind of kooky at times. I do appreciate you guys listening to me read. So uh, thank you so much. And uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are uh, equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. So uh, just get, we're just trying to get the word out about the show. I see Marisa was here too. All right. Anyway, thank you guys. And tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, I shall return. Have a great evening. <laughs>